All right, John chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 25 all the way through uh, verse 66 so that we can pick up just about everything the Lord has to say, certainly in this discourse, about this manna or bread from heaven. And there's a distinction to be made, which will be obvious to us in a few minutes here. So John chapter 6, verses 25 through 66. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What doth thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again on the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he had said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not amongst yourselves, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. 
Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Is this the Spirit? Excuse me. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you will open up your word unto us that we might see Jesus and partake of the living words of the true bread of life, even Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Um, well, this morning, the title of this morning's sermon is Christ, God's Rejected Bread. Christ, God's Rejected Bread. And so uh, I want to cover that this morning, and Lord willing, if we have time, I want to cover another point in here, and that would be the um, timing of what people call the rapture, the sequential timing of the rapture, because the Lord speaks about it here um, in these verses here. He sets before us um, some very important doctrinal truths. Um, so when we open up here this morning, we open up with an interesting exchange between the people and Jesus. You recall that this follows on the heels of him feeding 5,000 uh, more or less people, actually more, there was uh, 5,000 plus women and children. And it starts off with here in verse 30, with them saying, they ask for a sign that they might see and believe. And one of the things we have to appreciate from Scripture, and that's why we read so much from the Old Testament, is nothing has changed the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is one Bible. People behave the same way today as they believed back then. And I don't care how many proofs God sets in front of people, we will miss it unless he opens up our eyes and ears to see it and to hear it. And that is what is said before us back in Deuteronomy chapter 29. I'll read a couple of verses there. In Deuteronomy 29, this is a reiteration of the law right before the Israelites are going to go into the promised land. He sets this truth before them. In verse 2 of Deuteronomy 29, he says, And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. The great temptations which thine eyes have seen, the signs and those great miracles. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. 
your clothes are not waxen old upon you, and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness. God fed them. He gave them water to drink. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Their clothes didn't wear out. And they never figured out that they were living by the grace of God every step of the way. It was God who delivered them from Egypt and destroyed the Egyptian economy and destroyed all of Pharaoh's army. And yet they still didn't believe the Lord. He opened up the Red Sea. They went through. He gave them water to drink. Um, They still didn't understand because he had not given them eyes to see nor ears to perceive. And there is no difference between what happened then, what's happening before us in the scriptures here, and what happens today in the lives of people. So Jesus tells them they have already seen him do works, and yet they do not believe. And he says this down in verse 36. He says, but I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. In verse 2 of chapter 6, it says the great multitudes followed him because they saw the miracles that he did. Verse 14 says the same thing. And then those men, when they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said of a truth, this is the prophet that should come into the world. And then in verse 26, the Lord says to him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And so the Lord sets before the truth here that they have seen the things that he has done, and yet they do not believe. And so our deacon read this morning from Exodus and Numbers to help us to appreciate the truth, where it was God that gave the children of Israel bread to eat, to sustain them in their wilderness wanderings. And we saw that they despised it. And that's why I had him read from the book of Numbers here. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, which he read from, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Behold, I, I, God, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Down in verse 31, we can appreciate, it says here, the people called it manna, which means, what is it? They did not know what it was. So they called it manna. What God calls bread, they called manna. And this subtle difference carries itself throughout these scriptures where God calls it bread. God knows what it is. God knows what the purpose is. God knows who it represents. They call it manna because they don't know what it is. You'll see this in Psalm 78 if you were to look at that, where manna is used in a negative context. God talks about giving them manna in a, um, in a context of where they rejected it, and then the Lord brings um, um, judgment upon them. And then you read about it, and the word bread is used in Psalm 105, verse 40, where it's used in a positive context, where God gave them the bread of heaven to sustain them. So this juxta- these two words are juxtaposed against each other throughout the scriptures, and particularly here in John chapter um, 6. So the points that you should have picked up this morning from what our deacon read was, one, God gave it to them. God gave them this bread. Two, they did not know what it was. Three, They murmured against God, and they rejected it, lusting rather after the things of this earth, of the fruits of this earth. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 5, that our deacon read, it says there, Numbers 11, 5, I'm sorry. In Numbers 11, 5, the people said, We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Well, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, where do they grow? They grow in the earth. 
Remember when they sent out the spies into the Holy Land, or rather the Promised Land, to uh, spy it out? What did they come back with? They came back with the fruits from heaven. They came back with grapes. Those grow from above and hang down. And so these things are set apart uh, from one another so that we would appreciate that these people are lusting after the things, after the fruits of this earth. Those are the things that they have desired. And as a warning to us, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Lord says, this is the reason why I recorded these things. You know, a lot of things happened to the people in the wilderness, and a lot of things happened in Abraham and Isaac and, and um, Jacob's lives and Sarah and Hagar's lives that we don't know anything about. God has put specific things in the Scripture so that we would learn from those specific things because he has placed them there to teach lessons about the gospel and about himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll read the first six verses there because it's specifically referring back to this period. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking of the Red Sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. He's opening up a world of symbology and typology here about the bread, about the water, and about the rock, about how that, it's all Christ. Verse 6, but with many of them, excuse me, verse 5, but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. They are lusting after the fruits of this world and not after godly things. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. When our deacon read in Numbers chapter 21, what immediately follows their rejection of that light bread, the manna that they rejected, was the Lord sent them serpents. So he's specifically referring to here about how they tempted, here it says Christ, in the Old Testament, it's God, so we can appreciate that they are one and the same, that how they rejected Christ. Now, it should be obvious to hear that the Lord is warning us that we would not make the same mistake and reject Christ and lust rather after worldly things. And that is what the Jews are going to do here with Christ. They are going to reject him. So the Jews in particular are going to reject him, and the world in general are going to reject Christ. In verse 41 of John chapter 6, we read that the Jews murmured at him, just as they murmured against God in Exodus chapter 14, or 16 rather, where um, God tells them, no, they're not murmuring against you and Aaron. They're murmuring against me. The people are murmuring against God. They are rejecting what God has given them. In like manner, in verse 41 here, we can appreciate in John chapter 6 that they are murmuring against Christ. They are murmuring against God himself. So they are going to reject Christ, and they are going to reject his heavenly kingdom because they desire a Davidic-like earthly kingdom. They're looking for the glory of this world, and they want to place themselves on that throne. In John chapter 11, verse 48, the Lord says this before us because they hold a council of the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they say, as a collective group, if we thus let him alone, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Not only are we going to lose our nation, but of greater concern to me would be that I would lose my position within the community, that I would lose my political influence, and I would lose my political 
power. So they are concerned about losing the glory that this world might have to offer them. And so in lieu of that glory, um, they reject Christ. So they would not lose that glory, rather. Whom the Father hath sent. Now, how many times in this section of John chapter 6 did Jesus say that he was sent by the Father? He was sent by the Father. He makes that point many times throughout this section that he was sent by the Father. So again, the point of application is for us here is that we must ever keep our eyes fixed on Christ and not reject he whom the Father hath sent. We should never grow weary of hearing from him or about him because he is our spiritual meat and drink that sustains us on our pilgrimage through this present evil world. The manna, the people grew weary of eating as we read about this, as our soul lusts this. this um, um, let me get the exact words here. It was in Numbers chapter 5. Our soul loatheth, I'm sorry, our soul loatheth this light bread. That's what they call it. Manna or light bread. It's, they're using a negative term in terms of the gift that God has given to them. So we as Christians should never grow weary of hearing from Christ. And that is a warning that the Lord gives us in Second Timothy chapter 4 about where the church will be in the latter days. In the latter days, it says here, For the time will come when they, that would be the visible outward church, will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. What you will see in churches is that people will grow weary of hearing about Christ. He no longer fills them. He no longer is something that they find nutritious and edifying and necessary for eternal life. But they would rather hear those things which appeal to their lusts. The word lust appears in there in verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. They would rather hear of those things that meet their felt needs. And so you hear a lot of psychology preached from the pulpit because it makes people feel comfortable and have an appreciation and understanding maybe about how they should navigate this world uh, in social situations and about how they should deal with, on a psychological level, with um, difficulties that they face in this world. But Christ says, look to him for all things. Our needs, our needs as opposed to our wants, are only those things that Christ can meet. So we must ever look to him and feed upon him. So here we are in John chapter 6 with Christ of whom all the scriptures testify about. This is something he told them in John chapter 5 verse 39. He said, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Everything in the Bible testifies about Christ, including the manna from heaven. In verse 40, he says, you will not come to me, that you might have life. And he's going to set this truth before them, not only from a divine perspective, but also from a human perspective about how you're required to respond to what the Lord has set before you in terms of the truth. You put the manna from heaven out there, all they had to do was get up and go over and get it. So that was the humane side, the, the human side. The divine side was that God actually uh, provided it. So, as is clear as only could be taught by he who is God manifest in flesh, Jesus will speak of himself in the context of God's historical providence and their misapprehension of it. God gave them bread from heaven. They didn't know what it was and therefore called it manna. 
And they rejected it just as they're going to reject him. Scripture says that very clearly, John 1.11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Specifically as a nation, they did not receive him. But that's true of the world also in general. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 and 3, it says, Who hath believed our report? In other words, who's believed the gospel? And to whose arm, excuse me, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Such it was with the manna from heaven. There was nothing particular about it that they found attractive or appealing. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Well, that's true in particular of the Jews. It's also true in general of the world. The world does not find Jesus interesting at all, particularly because an apprehension and appreciation of him requires an apprehension and appreciation of who we are in terms of our depraved um, case. Now, the rejection of Christ became, uh, began quite early in his ministry, and we see it right here in verse 31 of John chapter 6, where they seek to denigrate his miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. In verse 31 it says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, you fed 5,000 people, plus women and children, one time by multiplying the loaves and the fishes. But Moses fed us for 40 years by that which came from the earthly heaven. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 9, it particularly speaks about how the dew came from heaven and the um, manna on top of that. So what they're saying here is that it came from the earthly realm. In the Jewish economy, there are three heavens. There's the first one, that would be where the clouds are. The second one are where the planets are. And the third one, the heaven to which uh, the Apostle Paul talks about being taken up to, would be the spiritual realm. So they're saying that this came from the first heaven. It came from the clouds. Um, so they're denigrating what he did. What you did was right here on the earth. What God did came from the clouds. Excuse me. What Moses did came from the clouds. In verse 32, and what follows, the Lord sets them straight about a number of things. In verse 32 and verse 33, the Lord said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Let's get this thing straight right off the bat. It didn't come from Moses. It came from my father. Notice in the verse above it, they talk about their fathers. Here he speaks of my father. Your fathers are not my fathers. I have a heavenly father. So the Lord's setting another subtle truth here about how he's not of this earth, that he's rather, he's from heaven. So Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, it's a person, which came down from heaven, that would be the spiritual heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Moses gave you nothing. What came to you came from my father. Frequently in the scriptures, we can appreciate that the Jews trust in their fathers, trusting in tradition, and they are trusting in Moses. They've got Moses so upside down in their heads, they don't appreciate what the Lord says when he says, there is one that accuseth you, even Moses. The law came by Moses. That's going to accuse you and condemn you because the law is the spirit of condemnation. It is a ministry unto death. But the true bread, grace and truth, comes from Christ. So Moses gave you nothing, 
What came down to you? It came from my Father. And so again, the application is true for all of us. We need to appreciate that everything that we have, everything we have comes from God. And so when we sit down to eat a meal, at the very least, we should thank the Lord for the food that's in, in front of us because it came from Him. God can take everything from you in but a moment. And when he does, you'll appreciate his sovereignty in your life and how he is the um, provider of all that we have. Um, I was speaking with one of the brethren earlier this week and using perhaps a poor analogy about my dog. My dog doesn't know that we have a 30-pound bag of food in the garage. All he knows is that every morning he hears the tinkling in the bowl and there is the food. Well, in like manner... You know, my father has unlimited resources in heaven from which he feeds me every single day, three times a day. He's very faithful about that. And, but as a human, what I want to do, I want to see that 30-pound bag, but yet it is in his hands at his disposal, and it is um, limitless. You see this is when uh, Joseph in Egypt is set before us as a wonderful type of Christ. It talks about him opening the storehouses, all the things that he had gathered. And so he provides for not only the nation of Egypt, but the coasts all round about. He is the dispenser of grace, typifying Christ, who, of course, is the dispenser of grace in our life. All things come from him, and so we need to thank him and credit him for all that the things that we have here. These people are not doing it. They're looking to Moses as though he had... Um, was the source of the manna from heaven. Now, the second thing the Lord says here, or point he makes here, and this is in verse 49, and I would call this a conversational stopper. <laughs> Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. <laughs> okay, I find that a humorous statement. Your fathers did eat man in the, in the wilderness and are dead. That's not what I'm talking about here. Third point is what came then from the earthly realm with the dew is inferior to he who stands before you now. For my Father sent me from the third realm, the spiritual realm. He's contrasting a number of things here. Manna with bread. Second heaven versus third heaven. That it comes from God, Christ's heavenly Father, and the saint's Father, and not from Moses. Um, So he sets before them, I am the true bread. I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of God. He sets these three things before us. He's the true bread, he's the bread of heaven, and he's the bread of God. I am the source of life, which every man must eat if they will have eternal life. And so how do the Jews respond to it? Again, they respond in exactly the same way as did their fathers. Verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. He sets all sorts of spiritual truths in front of them. And it's, as I said last week, it's almost like there's two different conversations going on because they're not perceiving what he's sharing with them. So they're they're still murmuring at a statement he'd made up, let's say in verse 32 and verse 33 verse 33, and yet he sets a number of spiritual truths in front of them after that point. But that's where, they, that's where they stopped. They didn't hear anything after that. And I'm sure you've had conversations in people where that's been the case with you. They're speaking about a number of things, and you get locked on the first point, and you don't hear uh, what follows after that. But again, as we read in Deuteronomy, God has to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and to perceive the things that he sets before us here. So as the Lord continues to develop the truth of who he is and man's relationship to him, he speaks about how if we are to have eternal life, 
We must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, something that the Jews should have understood in the context of the Mosaic law and the Levitical sacrificial system. And he's not speaking in a vacuum here. He's not laying something in front of them that uh, they ought not to have been able to connect the dots to. I mean, for a thousand or more years, they've had this sacrificial system set before them. For a thousand plus years, they've had the Mosaic law set before them. Time and time again, in the Mosaic Law, the Jews were taught that they were not to drink blood. Why weren't they to drink the blood? Because the life is in the blood. Do not drink the the blood because the life is in the blood. That would be in the life of the animal that was slain. Here the Lord says, you must drink my blood. Why? Because the life is in the blood. You want my life in you. True life, that is, eternal life. And you must eat his flesh too. That comes from the requirement of the Levitical priests. They were required to eat a portion of some of the sacrifices to indicate that they were um, um, repre- that it's a substitutionary offering, and that they were united with that which is being offered um, on the altar. And the same thing is true with us. That's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's table, as we do, to show our union with Christ, with His death uh, on the cross, with the sacrificial offering that was made. He says in here, and he speaks about uh, the unity between himself and you. Verse 56, he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Now, I think you can make some kind of an argument where if I eat something, it dwells within me. But I don't know how you'd make the argument that if I eat something, I dwell in them. So clearly the Lord is figuratively and spiritually speaking here. He's talking about union. With God. In the next verse, he says here, as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth with me, so he that eateth me, in other words, he that is united with me, uh, shall live by me. John 17, the Lord's going to open up this truth to us in a very obvious way about how he's one with the Father, as we are one with him, which makes us one with the Father, and therefore one with each other. So it's all about the unity of the saints that is being set forth uh, before us here. So the Jews should have appreciated this in the context of the sacrificial offering, the substitutionary offering, and the fact that the life is in the blood here. And so the Lord is speaking in his spiritual context. And he says that in verse 63, setting that simple truth before us. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh is still going to the grave, for goodness sakes. Four times in here he speaks of the resurrection. He's speaking of the resurrection of the body. He says, he that hath eternal life, meaning you have eternal life right now, right from the moment you believe, you have eternal life right then, and I'll raise you up at the last day. Obviously, your body's still going to the grave. So he's saying here, the words that I speak to you, the flesh, it's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So he's not speaking literally here, he's speaking figuratively, he's speaking spiritually. The way of salvation has never changed. It has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Neither Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, whom the Lord affirms as they are alive, because he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am the God of the living and not the God of the dead. So he sets before them in other places that they are alive. None of those people ever ate his flesh nor drank his blood. 
So clearly what he's talking about here is figuratively. They no more eat his flesh, ate his flesh and drank his blood than we do today in spite of what the Roman Catholic Church might teach with respect to the Eucharist, how they turned it into the actual body and the actual blood of Christ, relying heavily on this section as something that is required for salvation. Well, apparently it didn't apply to anybody that was saved previous to the cross, no more than it applies to anybody after the cross. And it certainly didn't apply to those people there when the Lord walked amongst them. He wasn't speaking in a literal sense here. So let's be careful that we never miss Christ the substance of whom the shadows and types point to. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. And given, again, all that is set before us here, what do the people do besides murmuring against him? Verse 66, from that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. So that is the response to their hearing about Christ. They murmur against him and they reject him exactly as did their fathers in the wilderness reject the manna that was from heaven, lusting after the things of this earth. And so as Christians, again, we would ever want um, our hearts to be fixed on Christ, and we would want that he would ever be our satisfaction, and that from which we would draw spiritual meat. Um, If you go to church and you leave church hungry, that would mean that Christ is not being set before you. You, It means you are not feeding on Christ. in which case, go somewhere else. Go where you can be fed, um, for heaven's sakes. Go where you can be fed. He is our meat and our drink. Now, um, having completed that study, again, having us appreciate those things, I wanted to talk about a, just a sterile study here in terms of um, the rapture. Um, The word rapture does not actually appear in the Bible. And the reason I'm covering it here is because the Lord speaks of the resurrection four times in this section here. He sets a truth before us here. In um, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we've already covered that. He's speaking of a bodily resurrection. He's speaking of a bodily resurrection in uh, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. I'll read that again anyway. 28 and 29. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming. This is future tense. Hadn't happened yet. Future tense. He's already spoken about in verse 25 about the hour is coming and now is. When the dead, I'm up in verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. Present tense. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear it shall live. He's talking about having eternal life and believing on the Lord. You hear his voice. You hear the gospel. Boom. You've come alive right then. Now in verse 28 He's speaking of a future time. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, that would be the Son of Man, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. He's speaking of the bodily resurrection. That's future tense. Now, to have done good means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about works-based salvation, so don't even go down that road. But he's talking about a bodily resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we already looked at that, speaking of a bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire chapter, it's about a bodily resurrection is. So the question is, when is it? When is the bodily resurrection? Well, John chapter 6, verse 39. John chapter 6, verse 39. He says it's on the last day. I should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 40. 
He that believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Resurrections on the last day. He's just told us twice. Verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 54. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, would it be a stretch if we were to draw the conclusion that the resurrection is on the last day? He says that pretty clearly here. So when is the rapture, the so-called rapture? Is it before or after the resurrection of the body? Well, what's it say in 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord gives us the order of events here. So there would be no question about it. There were people that were worried that they'd missed it. I used to have a friend who would call me. He lived on the East Coast, and he would call me and say, Hey, did I miss it? Has the rapture happened yet? Is it going to start in the West and come East, or is it going to go start in the East and move West? Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll pick it up in verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. God's going to bring these people with him. Why is he going to bring them with him? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. These are people that have already died. Their bodies are in the graves, but they're with the Lord. He's going to bring them with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not pre-event them which are asleep. In other words, if you happen to be alive and walking around on this earth, pre-event means beforehand, before the event. You're not going ahead of them. That's what he's saying here. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. That would be the last trump. For with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. People that are in the grave are going ahead of the people that are walking around on the earth here. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's telling us here that the resurrection of the dead body comes ahead of the, quote, rapture. It comes first. When is the rapture? It's on the la- excuse me, when is the resurrection? It's on the last day. If the resurrection's on the last day and we are caught up to be with the Lord after the resurrection, then that's on the last day. So this idea that it happens seven years before the end of the time, the Lord's coming back, you know, and all this convoluted stuff you read about when you read the series Left Behind or watch those um, foolish movies, it's all false. It's all false doctrine. It's happening on the last day. The Lord sets that very clearly before us here. And, and as times wax worse, guess what? We're still going to be doing things just the way they did in Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord rained down fire. We're going to be given in marriage and, and taking in marriage and doing all sorts of things, shopping at, uh, at Macy's or wherever, shopping at Amazon, um, doing all the things that we normally do um, right before the Lord comes. And we'll be doing these things until the last day. Nobody's getting off this earth early. And you're not getting off without going through the grave unless it happens to be after the resurrection. So I wanted to set that truth before us here so that we would ever look to Christ and get your eyes off of the earthly Jerusalem and on the heavenly Jerusalem, because that's where we're, we're headed. So in summary, keep our eyes on Christ. Those are the truths that he has set before us here. All the shadows and types point to him, and there he is standing right in front of the people, and they're going to reject him, just as they did the manna. So my prayer is that we would never despise Christ. We would never grow weary of hearing from him and about him because in him is eternal life. And the words that we hear from him 
are the words of eternal life. And that's what the conclusion uh, the Simon Peter does by the grace of God in verse 68 says, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And indeed, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God doth he live. Amen. Amen. Amen.